So typically on Sunday morning, I get here around 6.15 to just look over the sermon notes again and pray a little bit. So this morning as I, I arrived here praying, I felt like I had this, this revelation from God. I think it's probably time for us to launch Northbrook Church Fort Myers. Now hear me out. Hear me out. Wait, just look, hear me out. Here's how I think it would look. I would be willing to sacrifice and go and launch it. And once it's, it's going, Pastor John and I could switch. So like, I'll go down to Northbrook Fort Myers from like January to May. And then when it's a thousand degrees, John will switch and I'll come, come back here. Anyone want to go with me? Good. All right, that has nothing to do with today's sermon. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 48 is where we're headed. Before we begin, let's just take a moment and just quiet our hearts and our minds before God. I'm reminded of the words of scripture that today is the day that you have made. And I will choose to rejoice and be glad in it. Whatever it is that we've come here with, oh God, we offer to you. We trust you. We love you. And now as we open the scriptures, would you... Would you open our hearts to receive whatever it is you want to say to us? Would you renew our minds so that we could process and think and become more like you? We ask this in the great name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So the the individuals that live in my home have a very high standard when it comes to their water quality. Well, everyone except for me and the dog, like, we don't care. I, I grew up drinking out of a hose. Because of this, we have both a reverse osmosis system and a water softener. Because we have a water softener, I have to regularly lug 50-pound bags of salt from Costco down to the basement where the water softener lives, compressing my spine and, I think, making me shorter than I already am. But every once in a while, I forget to put salt in the water softener. And I don't notice because I just don't care, right? But... Then I'm reminded, Michael, is there salt in the water softener? Oh, yeah, yeah, I forgot I'll do it. That does seem to happen a lot. And so sometimes I will say, yes, I forgot to put salt in the softener. Nobody's perfect. You ever use that phrase? Nobody's perfect. Oh, oh, sometimes we use that phrase compassionately, like someone does something dumb or messes up, and we say, it's okay, nobody's perfect. Other times we use it as an excuse, like I do with the water softener cell. Nobody's perfect. Today as we turn to uh, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is going to use a word in his sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, 
that most Bibles translate as perfect. So this weekend we are in the second week of Epiphany. Epiphany is a celebration on the church calendar that's reminiscent of several things, one of which the the life and ministry of Jesus, those three years in which he lived and he preached. Over these weeks, we are looking at Jesus in in his own words, particularly his words given in his most famous of sermons called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, when Jesus gave this sermon, those that heard it were living in catastrophic conditions. First century Galilee was a very tough place to be during the times of Christ. That part of the world was occupied by the Roman Empire. The people were heavily taxed and they were living in dire poverty, many of them. There was also fear of of illness, particularly that of of leprosy. Leprosy was a horrible disease in Jesus' day because there was no cure. But not only was there no cure, when you were diagnosed with leprosy, you had to isolate yourself from the community because of how contagious it was. Whenever you went out in public, you were required by law to wear bells on your clothing so people could hear you coming and you would have to yell, unclean, so those around you could get out of your way. There was a lot of fear around sickness and disease. There was a lot of fear around the control of the Roman Empire. And there was a lot of poverty. And to make matters worse... The Israelites were living in a land that they believed was God's promised land to them, God's gift. And the Romans came in and just took it away. And as a result, there were several revolts that happened during the lifetime of Jesus. And the the people, they, they waited expectantly for a Messiah to come. It's into this environment, this hostile environment, this difficult environment, that Jesus launches his ministry. And Jesus comes and he speaks about this thing called the kingdom of God over and over and over. And he speaks of it not as a political construct, but as a new way of living in the world, a new society operating on the three pillars of the Torah, the the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, justice, compassion, and the love of God. But what the people wanted was a Messiah who would, would fight, would usher in a new way for them to be in control of their land and their kingdom. But Jesus' vision was different. And he outlines a lot of his vision in that oh-so-famous collection of teachings and sermon that he gives called the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is so prolific and so influential that for centuries, people have been writing about it and using it as a philosophy of life. The rock band U2 wrote a song based on the Sermon on the Mount, The reggae artist Bob Marley also wrote a song on the Sermon on the Mount. Martin Luther King Jr. and Gandhi both used the Sermon on the Mount as their basis for nonviolent resistance against racism. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Corey Ten Boom also used the Sermon on the Mount as their standard of living in the Nazi regime of Germany. Today we look at verses 21 through 48 of the Sermon on the Mount, which is a kind of sporadic collection of Jesus' teaching. He, he goes in and out and uses, talks about all kinds of topics, but, he, but Jesus ends this section, chapter 5, with these words. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. This is what Jesus says. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be perfect. How many would use the word perfect to describe yourself? Just be humble and raise your hand. Just, just do it. Is Jesus setting an impossible standard? Well, it depends on how you translate a very important Greek word. Because the word that Jesus uses that we translate as perfect in the Greek language is the word teleos. The word teleos doesn't mean without mistake or moral perfection. The word teleos means complete, whole, or undivided. So when Jesus uses the word teleos, he's not asking us to become perfect as we know it. He's moving us towards wholeness. Now see, the opposite of wholeness is fragmented or, to use a Bible word, hypocritical. Jesus regularly in the Gospels refers to the Pharisees, the religious leadership of his day, as hypocrites because their hearts and their actions were not unified. Oh, the Pharisees did everything right religiously. They followed the religious law to its very T, but their hearts were not transformed. Jesus speaks about this in Matthew chapter 7 when he says in his own words, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and drive out demons in your name and perform miracles in your name? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Jesus, we did all of the right things. Yeah, but it didn't affect your heart. So you see, as Jesus is speaking, he's not just speaking as like a philosopher or a wisdom teacher. He comes declaring himself as the Messiah. And as the Messiah, some of the things he says and teaches were both disruptive and costly. They, they came with a price. So now as we come to Matthew chapter 21, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus is going to give six real-life examples of what it means to live as teleos in his kingdom. He's going to give examples of human life and relationship, and each saying he follows the same pattern. He makes a statement from the Torah, the Jewish scriptures, then he'll explain its true intent, and then give the practical application for it today. Now, as he says some of these things, which are difficult, some of the things he says are hard to hear and even harder to live out. But what we have to understand 
is that Jesus is not shaming our weakness. He's calling us to wholeness. He's calling us to completeness. Hear it again. He's not shaming our human weakness, but he's calling us to something better. He's calling us to wholeness and completeness. So as we enter into this sermon, a sermon that goes in all kinds of directions, hear Jesus again in his own words. Verse 21. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Have you ever felt angry? You ever experienced the emotion of anger? This week, you you may have noticed it snowed a little bit outside. And I... I actually don't mind the snow. I'm, I'm, I'm growing less and less fond of the cold, but I don't actually mind the snow. And I kind of like snow blowing because I, I find it relaxing and just I've got a big, so it, it goes easy typically. So I go out to plow my driveway, which has like yeah, almost a foot of snow on it, and fire up the snow blower, starts, it's all good, survive the summer, get everything going, it's humming. I line it up in the driveway and get ready to go. And the moment I engage the auger, the cable snapped. Snapped right in half. Are you serious? Now, I, I'm not particularly handy. So I called some folks and like, oh, yeah, yeah, we can get you in in February. I'm like, that's a long time away. And so I was out there with a shovel five different times and I felt the emotion of anger. (laughs) That's not what Jesus is talking about. (laughs) Jesus is talking about that anger that we hold deep in ourself towards another person, justified or not. That anger that poisons our soul and taints the way that we view the world and and people. He actually compares it to murder. Because the the heart of the issue is not, he's not speaking about the act of murder per se, but this, this inner disposition that would cause someone to act that violently in the first place. These words are a challenge to examine one's attitudes and the words that we use, because those are just as important as refraining from violence. The relationship that we have with one another, Jesus goes on to say, is in itself as important as worship. Verse 23. Therefore, if you're offering a gift at the altar, speaking of Old Testament sacrifice in this case, and remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar first and go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. First, as an act of worship, pursue in some way reconciliation, thus elevating the importance of humanity, elevating the importance of relationship. Then Jesus, he, he switches. He goes, okay, we've covered that. Now, now he says, verse 27, and you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, Jesus is 
This is speaking here to the diminishment of people. Jesus is speaking about that, that lust in our heart that objectifies another human being. See, in this moment, Jesus is elevating the weight of what it means to be in relationship with another person. He takes it one step further and says, verse 31, And it has been said that anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now you've got to hear the cultural heart of what Jesus is saying. As he spoke these words, the intent of these words was at its core to protect women from the harshness of their husband. Because in Jesus' day, a a man could divorce his wife for any reason without court proceeding. All he had to do was write out a certificate and hand it to her. It could be for something as simple as burning dinner. Honey, you burn the shawarma and the falafel, you're out. But see, in Jesus' day, if a woman was divorced, in many instances it was the equivalent of a death sentence because the way culture existed then is like the, like women had no way to, to 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 get income to take care of herself right it was just a cultural reality so what's one to do you said listen i there's a covenant that's been violated here and again this isn't about about shame this is about pointing towards towards wholeness he's elevating the weight of relationship Then he goes on to say, verse 33, and again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you've made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no, Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Or in other words, Jesus is saying, in my kingdom, be a person of your word. Imagine what the world would look like if we were all people of our word. And he continues, and you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to take, sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go go with them two miles and give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So now Jesus, first he's talking about non-retaliation. If someone slaps you in the face, what he's referencing here is the act of humiliating another person. To be slapped in the face was an act of humiliating another individual. You ever been slapped in the face? I can tell you firsthand it's humiliating. Happened to me one time. I remember exactly when it happened and where it happened. I was 16 years old. It happened at Anderson's Custard in Tonawanda, New York. I had broken up with a girlfriend, and in front of all my friends, she walked up to me at this ice cream place and slapped me in the face. It was humiliating. But Jesus says, if someone chooses to humiliate you, say, man, 
Here's the other one. Don't retaliate. Now, what he's not suggesting is defense. Like if someone is, is harming your family, Jesus isn't suggesting, oh, just turn the other cheek. No, 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 that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the act of humiliation. <clears throat> then he goes on to say, and if someone wants you to go a mile with them, go two. He's referencing a law. In the times of Jesus, any Roman soldier could ask any citizen to carry their military pack for one mile to give them a break. They weren't given an option. They would just hand it to him and say, you carry this for a mile. But Jesus says, if you're going to go a mile, then, then go two. And if someone wants to borrow from you, share your stuff. That's how it is in my, my kingdom. And then he wraps it all up by saying, and you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The mind would have immediately gone to the Romans. And then he says, he concludes by saying these words, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. I have failed in almost every one of these. And I bet you have too. And what Jesus is saying is he's not shaming our weakness. He's inviting us into wholeness. He's inviting us into something better, even in the midst of our perfection. Oh, and we try and we try and we try to be so good. Try and try and then when we fail, it feels like everything collapses and we got to start all over again. Last week, uh, I was putting the groceries away. We have a pantry in our kitchen and uh, with shelves in it. And I was putting away the groceries and I was putting away a couple of boxes of gluten-free pancake mix. Put the first box on top, then I put the second box on the top shelf. I turned around and walked away and heard this crash. The entire pantry, the shelves came out of the wall and everything just crashed to the floor. Glass jars breaking, stuff everywhere. It's been a week. I clean up the mess, broken jars of salsa, take everything out, put the shelf back in, and I start to replace all the screws. And I realize, I said, there's a bunch of places where screws should have been that they weren't. And I'm getting frustrated at the builder because I was thinking the builder put it and built it. And so I turned to my wife and I said, these idiots didn't put all the screws in. And she looks at me and she goes, well, those idiots are me and your father because we're the ones that put that shelf in. <laughs> and it went exactly as you thought. Thank you. <laughs> oh, we try so hard to add so many things to our life so that we will do the right thing and be perfect in the eyes of Christ and not mess up. And then everything collapses and put it back up and try to add more religious stuff thinking that that will help. When the invitation of the kingdom 
of God is one of, of wholeness. One that reminds us that regardless of how perfect or imperfect we are, that we are the beloved of God. That we can live before him vulnerably and honestly. Because that really is the original intent. When God created Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden, they were both naked and they were not ashamed. They were completely vulnerable between God, before God and each other, and there was no shame. There was love and trust in living our truest self in Christ. Oh, but see, when I'm, when I'm fractured, when I'm fragmented, when I'm not living wholeness, what there is is there's shame and there's fear and there's selfishness. There's anger. And there's not keeping my word and there's out of control lust and it's destructive and and I don't want to live that way and I bet you don't either. And so what Jesus asks of us is this. John chapter 15, he says, remain in me as I remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. For this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands and remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love, I told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. No, Jesus is not asking us to be perfect in the way that we define it. He's asking us, he's inviting us to teleos, to wholeness, to completeness in him, which begins by abiding in him and remaining in him. And so this week, oh God, in every interaction that I have, every word that I speak, every decision that I make, let me abide in you. Let me remain in you. Let me remain in your love. As I consider the ways of your kingdom, some of which are are difficult to live, you don't ask us to live that way because you're trying to punish us or keep us from something, but you're, you're bringing us towards wholeness. I want to live whole. I want to live my truest self in you, in Christ. And so God, where we fail, would you forgive us and help us? Would you give us the deepest of desires to become more like you? 
Would you transform not only our actions, but our heart? Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mike.